Thank you so much for joining us for today's message at North Coast Church. We are excited to be able to have you with us. To prepare, we encourage you, go to our website, northcoastchurch.com, or use our North Coast Church app. To be able to download our message notes, you can give online, or you can put in your prayer request. Now let's join Pastor Larry Osborne for today's message. Hey, it's good to be with you again, and we're continuing our series on the life of David, and in particular, this is message number three on the whole infamous story of David and Bathsheba. A couple of weeks ago, what we did is we saw how the mighty fall, and we saw how David went from a hero to a zero in seven simple steps, and what we need to learn so that we don't fall into the same kind of trap, not just with sexual sin, but any of those desires that are the fleshly sins, fleshly desires, those things that come from the inside out where we end up walking away from what God has called us to do and to be. And then last weekend, Pastor Chris uh, focused on the brokenness that David had and the importance of that being the, the key to victory in our life after we have fallen. And so we saw the terrible consequences and the way that David responded uh, to the sin when it was pointed out to him. Well, this week I'm going to take a, a, a kind of a running start from what Chris looked at last weekend, and we're going to look at how the fallen can rise again. Now, last weekend we took the first step uh, we're going to look at today, so I'm going to remind you of it once again. But then the rest of it is really going to focus on what do we do, or when we have someone we care for and love who has fallen, what do we do if we want to see ourselves fly again? And the Bible's really got some very clear steps, many of which are, are uh, spelled out for us right here in this story of David Bathsheba, his realizing his sin and his response to it. So let's take a little bit of a brief look back. Here's what has happened so far in this whole David and Bathsheba saga. David had decided back in chapter 11 to stay in Jerusalem when he should have gone out to war with all of his, his troops. He had taken up on himself a special sense of privilege. I'm different. I've been so blessed. And we saw what happened as a result of that. While walking on the rooftop one evening, he sees a beautiful woman down below. And he allows his glance to become a, a gaze. His curiosity is, is uh, uh, fed. He then sends somebody to find out who she is. And then he sends for her. And then he sleeps with her. And she sends back a message saying, I'm pregnant. So then he goes into overdrive on how to cover that up. And we saw that his cover-up was kind of clever and ingenious at first. And when none of that worked, he was so frightened by what he had done and that being exposed that he actually fell to the absolute lowest point we can imagine, where he not only had committed adultery with a wife of one of his trusted warriors, but he went so far as to have him killed on the battle and to shrug his shoulders at the collateral damage of the other soldiers that were killed when that was done. And about a year later, Chris picked up the story last weekend where David is looking pretty much like a hero to everyone. I mean, he's taken in the pregnant, widowed wife of one of his trusted warriors. I mean, what a great thing to do to provide for her, to add her to the wives that you already have. And then suddenly the prophet Nathan stepped forward, told a little bit of a parable about someone who had taken from someone else and says, when David gets all enraged, we've got to go after this guy, he says, you are that man. And then David accepts the responsibility for his sin. And the story moves on from there. Now, we're going to pick it up with part of what we saw last weekend. But uh, I want us to see 
uh, carefully from the passage, some new verses we didn't look at, and some verses Chris read for us but didn't have time to dig into every aspect of it. And we're going to see the right response to the wrong thing. So we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 to 31. Here we go. Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, after Nathan had said, you are the man who has done this, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, well, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But, a circle highlight, underline that word, but, if you didn't last weekend, because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son that is being born to you and Bathsheba is going to die. Well, after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. Now, in verses 16 and 18, David pleads with God for the child. He fasts, he prays, he refuses to eat anything. And seven days later, when the child dies, his servants are absolutely panicked to be able to tell him this because they're thinking he might do something crazy. He might do something to himself. And so they don't tell him, but he can tell something's going on. They're walking around kind of whispering, you know, that whole drill uh, that happens. So David says, is the child dead? And they say, yes. And right at that point, David shocks him with his response. We pick it up in verse 20. Then David got up from the ground. After he'd washed, he put on lotions, changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. And then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. And when they asked him, why in the world are you asking this way? Verse 22, he answers, well, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept, but I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he's not going to return to me. And then David comforted Bathsheba. He went to her, made love to her, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah, which was the other name of Solomon, which means loved of the Lord. Now, meanwhile, (coughs) excuse me, meanwhile, while all this was happening, Joab fought against Rabab of the Ammonites. And he captured the royal citadel. And Joab then sent messengers to David. Well, I fought against Rob, and I've taken its water supply. Now you muster the rest of the troops, and you come besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I'm going to take the city, and it's going to be named after me. I'm going to get all the credit as a general, and you won't get it as king. So, verse 29 says, David mustered the entire army, and he went to Rob. And he attacked, and he captured it. And he took the crown from the king's head, and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent, which, by the way, is about 75 pounds of gold, and it was set with precious stones. He took a great uh, quantity of plunder from the city, and he brought out the people who were there, and he co-signed them over to labor with saws, and uh, consigned them over to labor, co-signed, consigned them uh, (coughs) to labor with saws and with picks and axes, and he made them work at brick-making. David did this to all the Ammonite towns, and then he and the entire army returned to Jerusalem. So we've got everything from from, uh, him saying, I am the one who sinned, to him weeping and fasting and praying, the Lord saying no, he gets up, he kind of moves on with part of his life, and then at the end of this, he's being all blessed again in all of his battles. And what we've got here is a picture of how the fallen rise again. 
Now, David's like, man, he's like a roller coaster, up and down, up and down. Next weekend, we're going to see him hit one of those lows again, and we're going to see why that low was hit. Not so much one that, uh, that he brought upon himself in that moment, but he brought upon himself through the whole series of time and continued to. So he's going to be up and he's going to be down. But there's no question, David is a guy who rose again. He wrote scriptures after this particular event. He reigned very successfully after this particular event. Many blessings, even though there was always a dark cloud over them and the greatest things were somewhat tarnished, many great things happened to him. He's a quintessential story of fallen, fallen to the greatest depths you can imagine, and yet somehow through the grace and mercy of God rising again. So here's what I want us to do in the rest of our time today. We're going to step back and we're going to take a look at how the fallen rise again. What are the steps that are found in this passage, found in the rest of Scripture, and are so key in our lives or when we're trying to help someone else's fallen to get them back flying again? Now, David obviously has done a horrific thing. Uh, the murder, collateral damage of other people murdered in it, uh, the uh, affair that he has with a, a, a friend's wife. This applies not just to horrible things, but what's so great about using this passage is it shows there's nothing beyond a sense of repair. That we have a God who takes damnable Friday and turns it into good Friday. And he takes the damnable things you and I can do and he turns them into his glory and his grace and his mercy, trophy pieces of it. But also think of this in terms of the little things. Uh, you know, a, a small mess up at work that was brought on by your own decisions, uh, something that's made your relationship not what it should be, that's, that's damaged your marriage, your relationship with your kids, uh, your future dreams, really whatever it is, when you have fallen through something you have done of your own, small or great, still, these are the principles to get up and to fly again. So the first one is this, and we saw so much of it last weekend, but I've got to go over it again because without it, we will never fly again. The first step is this. They take responsibility. They take responsibility. David's first response when Nathan said after that parable, you were the man who did this and you're all mad at him. You did the same thing to your friend Uriah. David's first response is not full of excuses. It's I have sinned. He takes full responsibility, zero excuses. And this is always the key to accessing God's grace and mercy in our life. I quoted a couple weeks ago, Proverbs 28, 13, and the first part of it says this, he who conceals or covers up his sin won't prosper. And covering up and concealing our sin, it's not just keeping it so other people don't know, as David tried to do with all of the things he did with Uriah to cover it up. It also means uh, the sense of concealing by watering over it, by acting as if there's really no big deal when there really is a big deal. Listen to one of the most famous verses in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It's surrounded by verses 8 and 10, and so I'm going to read the whole thing here. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We sin. If, circle, highlight, underline, if we confess our sins, we come clean with them. We take responsibility. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
But if we've claimed we not sinned, ah, it was just a mistake, it was an error of judgment, and all the different things we do to avoid calling sin, sin, well, we make God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. I was thinking about it this week, and you can contrast that, as we've mentioned before in passing, with the way that King Saul uh, dealt with his sinful choices. You know, Saul, in all of our minds, did things that weren't as bad as what David did, and yet Saul has a kingdom ripped from him, and David doesn't. Why? Well, part of it is God's just choosing of David in his grace and mercy, but another part of it is David responded so differently. He responded with, I have sinned. Let me remind you of what we saw way back, long ago, far away in another galaxy when we began this sermon series. We started in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where King Saul had been told to completely wipe out the Amalekites. But instead of doing so, he spared the best of the flocks. And then when Samuel shows up and the best of the flocks are around there and he says, what's up with this? This is what he says. Hey, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Well, then Samuel asks, well, what about the bleeding of the sheep that I hear off in the distance? What's Saul say? Well, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. He throws the others under the bus for his decision, and he says, well, listen, we did all the rest of this, so let's not make a big deal about this part that I didn't do. And when Samuel said, well, why didn't you completely obey the Lord? Saul says, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. Now catch this. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and I brought back their king. Like, uh, I'm sorry, those are oxymorons. Those two things don't fit together. And the soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to the Lord in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God at Gilgal. And then when he was told, this doesn't work, buddy. Much harsher words than that, but this doesn't work. Saul says, I've sinned, finally. I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. And then he says, I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Notice, I have sinned, but it was because I was afraid. They were putting all this pressure and I gave in to them. It's the classic thing we hear in the news every now and then. If I have offended anybody, I want to apologize. It's like, no, dude, you offended tons of people. That's why you're up here in front of the cameras having to apologize. But if I throw out at, well, if I have, now suddenly it's your fault for being offended instead of my fault for what I said or what I did. Let's talk about this idea of the brokenness Chris talked about last weekend and coming clean and taking full responsibility because genuine confession that takes responsibility has these three ingredients. Number one, it calls sin, sin. We don't use words like, well, it's a weakness. You know, I made a mistake. Well, everybody was pressuring me. No, I have sinned for David, period. For Saul, because dot, dot, dot. We've got to call sin, sin. Or God will not restore us to the point that we're able to fly again. It's a starting point. The second thing is it doesn't make excuses. Blaming others, 
well, you know, I'm addicted. Well, you know, all of us in this ethnic group or my culture or my genetics or my family, you know, it's mom and dad's fault because I was from a dysfunctional home. All the different things we do to cover up our sin, not so that no one sees it, but so that no one holds us responsible. And then third, this is equally important, it turns from the sin. It calls sin, sin. It doesn't make any excuses, and it turns from the sins. Remember that verse, Proverbs 28, 13, I used a couple weeks ago, and I quoted a few minutes ago. He who conceals his sin won't prosper. The next line in that verse is this, but the one who confesses and, and renounces them finds mercy. Not the one who confesses, but doesn't renounce there's a great story I always go to in uh, the book of Judges. I believe it's on your note sheet, chapter 10, verses 6 to 16, where the Israelites are going through a series of times where they disobey the Lord and they get captured by foreign nations and they, they're subject to them for a while. Then they cry out to the Lord and the Lord sends what's called a judge to deliver them, just like he had with Samuel and, and, and with others before um, they got a king called Saul and another king called David. So the book is called Judges, series of these cycles and the judges or leaders that God would send to them. Well, in Judges chapter 10, the Israelites once again have bowed down before the idols of the other nations and got involved in all their immorality and all kinds of things like God had told them not to do. So he says, you want their gods? You can have them as, 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 as your leaders. You can have them as your king. So verse 10 says this, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Catch this. We have sinned. Once again, that's what we think confession is. Well, I've sinned. No. We have sinned against you. And what, they even named what they did. We have forsaken our God and we have served the demon gods Baal. Well, as you read on, you know what God does in the rest of that passage? He turns around and says, I've rescued you in the past from this nation and this nation and this nation. I'm tired of it. So why don't you just cry out to the gods that you have chosen? Let them save you when you're in trouble. And then the Israelites cry out to him, okay, we have sinned, and now notice they add this. We accept whatever you do. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Still no help. And then in verse 16, keyword, then. I have it circled and circled and circled in my Bible. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and they served the Lord and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. They called sin, sin. They didn't make excuses. They even labeled what they'd done, but they hadn't got rid of the foreign gods. And you and I have to, if we're truly uh, repentant, if we're truly broken, we have to have more than words. We have to actually, the word repentance in the Bible means turn around and change directions. And that's what we see in David's life in this particular area of his life. And that's what God calls for as a first step. So that's a brokenness, uh, another angle of it, but that Chris did such a great job last weekend of highlighting and pointing out for us. But now I want you to catch the second thing we see in David's experience and, and his, his, his turnaround that is so vital in ours. Again, whether it's a huge thing we've done or a small thing. Those who rise again accept the immediate consequences. 
They not only take responsibility, they accept the immediate consequences. And, and that's a key word, this word immediate. You see, the immediate consequences for David was that this child died. And when the child died, when we read that passage, what did David do? He said, okay, that's it. And he moved on, as we're going to see in a few moments. But the key thing here is he didn't do something. He didn't say, God, how could you? I I, I think that's often, especially mid-sized sins or smaller sins or something's not going right. I look back at my own life, and there's always this tendency to think, well, if I come clean, then everything's going to be okay. If I tell the teacher I cheated on the test, the teacher's going to go, okay, that's okay. I so love your integrity. If I tell the officer, yeah, you're totally right. I was driving too fast. I was in a hurry. He's going to go, okay, we're going to make this a warning. And, and, and the fact is, there are often very immediate consequences of what we do. And if in our mind we've got this idea, well, I'm confessing so that I don't get the ticket. Uh, I'm confessing so that I don't get the uh, uh, F. Uh, I'm confessing so that God will change the circumstances. We're heading in the wrong direction. God's forgiveness, as we've shown you before, does not remove earthly consequences. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. We've seen it over and over. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. We reap what we plant. A law of the universe and a law of the unseen realm. Now, here's what's so important about this. The way I respond to the immediate consequences of my sin reveals the level of responsibility I take for it. When Chris last weekend talked about brokenness, when I talked about taking responsibility, when, when, when I push back with a, how, God, how could you, when it's related to my sin, all that's showing me is I don't really see the sin for what it really is. We get angry at God when he doesn't remove the consequences. We're shocked when the judge hands out a harsh sentence. We can't believe it when our spouse doesn't immediately take us back. We're frustrated when we're forgiven, but not immediately trusted. It's like, wait a minute. We are going to harvest. We're going to reap what we plant. (laughs) And what we planted was something worthy of a harsh sentence. What we planted was a, 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 something that broke the marriage. What we planted was uh, something that broke trust. Uh, you can just go on and on with a list. I love a passage Chris mentioned last weekend, Psalm 51.4. You are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. What a beautiful picture of David understanding his sin was sin, And because he understood that, his willingness not to get upset with God with the consequences, but if anything, be upset with himself and to buckle up and accept them. You know, I was thinking about a couple of people uh, and experiences, uh, and they are so long ago, and I've changed a couple of the details, so you don't have to feel when you tell me something is going to show up in a sermon. But, but, but here's the principle of it. Uh, There was a gal a number of years ago who lost her job for stealing some money from the till. And she felt very convicted about it, and she went to the boss and gave the money back. The boss was so appreciative, but fired her. 
And the beauty of why God was able in a bunch of other areas where this gal had messed up and made a mess of her life as well, the beauty of what God was able to do was the fact that she didn't get mad at God when she was talking to me about it. I was waiting for the normal thing I, I hear, which is, well, I just don't understand it. I mean, I came clean and didn't cost her anything and all that. Here's what she said. I know I deserved it. And the moment she said that, I went in my head, you have made a major step in your spiritual life because you're starting to see sin for what it is, rebellion against the King Most High, and you're starting to see the consequences for what they are, the natural consequences we deserve. Now, I contrast that with another guy who lost his wife because of long-term alcohol abuse and, and verbal abuse. So he's, he's abusing alcohol in his life and he's abusing his wife verbally. He then comes to repentance, comes to God. I mean, and this guy is on fire for the Lord, let me tell you. I mean, he is all in. And his wife won't take him back. He tries everything. Oh, I understand. I, I got to earn my trust back. He tr- he's tried everything he can. She never took him back. And somewhere two, three months in the immediate consequences of this, he came and the next time I'm talking to him, he's, he, he's just spewing out, why God, woe is me. And I realized, you know what? He's taking some baby steps in his faith, but he's not yet come to understand what it is all about. Because it takes responsibility and it accepts the immediate consequences, not as being God's meanness, but being the, the fruit that we have planted and the fruit that we are now harvesting. Well, there's a third thing we see in the life of David and the life of anyone who falls and learns to fly again. And that is they get up and they move on. They get up and they move on. This is the point at which grace becomes a reality in our life instead of a theological idea or construct. You read that passage and the baby's dead. And, and, and like, so I'm sitting there going, well, okay, now you're supposed to mourn for a long period of time and do all of this stuff. And what's he do? He gets up, bathes, goes and worship God. And then he goes in and he says, hey, by the way, uh, feed me. I, I, I want my king's meal. And then he goes into Bathsheba. He makes love to her and they have a son. And by the way, not just any son, a son the Lord loved. God, think about this. As horrific as its start was, God blessed David and Bathsheba's marriage with a son who was going to become king, a son who was going to write scripture, and out of David's many children, the lineage that chases down to Jesus Christ, the king of kings, comes through, not David and his other wives, David and Bathsheba and Solomon. And then... He finally, instead of hanging back when kings should be out to war, he gets, he gets the text message from Joab, hey, I'm about to conquer this place. And what's he do? He gathers everybody else. He goes and conquers. He does the job of a king. He subjugates the other uh, towns that are around, and he comes back with victory. You see, here's the deal. After you've made a mess of things, and you're willing to call sin, sin, and you're willing to accept the consequences, you don't need to beat yourself up. Here's what you do. You wake up that next morning and you ask this question. I put it before you many times. What is the right thing to do today? 
And that's what David did. It's not, what do I do to show my sorrow for all that stuff? It's like, it's over. Yesterday can't come back. It is done. All we have is today. And God is about to build something different, but he will only build it like a potter and shape it into something different if we get back on that potter's wheel and let him. They get up and they move on. By the way, there's going to be people look around and go, oh, you shouldn't be moving on. You shouldn't do this, shouldn't do that. Because in this day and age, everybody wants you to wallow in your failures. Everybody wants to, as we're going to see in a few moments, label you with what you were, not what you are. But we've got to believe that God's grace and God's mercy is not simply, as I said, a theological construct. It's a flat-out reality that touches our lives at the deepest and most intimate and closest levels. And that's what we see David doing in this passage. Now, here's the fourth thing, if we're going to fly. They endure the long-term consequences. Now notice, remember earlier we had immediate, and then now we've got long-term. There is a significant, significant difference in these two things. It's much harder, much, much harder to deal with the long-term consequences. It's hard enough to deal with the short term. I mean, I, I told you I cheated. You should give me an A that I, I got by cheating and just pat me on the head that I learned a character lesson. Nope. But at least we somewhat understand the immediate consequences. But you'll recall, as we have seen in the two previous messages here with David and Bathsheba, that the end result of his sin was this litany of things that would go wrong the rest of his earthly life. No, God would have blessings within it, but he would basically be a Greek tragedy, even with all the good things that would happen. And it's in the long-term consequences that our restoration is made complete and our character is developed. And as I said, this is often the hardest step because we feel we should be past it by now. If I had people tell me that once, I've had them tell me that a thousand times. But, but, but how long is this going to last? My answer is always, I don't know. But it's tied to what you did. And as you stand strong in it, that is the point at which your character is being developed. Man, to have a short-term consequence, get, uh, get back on the saddle and, and move on, and then from that point on, everything goes great, and there's none of those earthly consequences. You know, we're, we're, we're setting ourselves up not to have the character development to change, but we're setting ourselves up to start believing, well, you do something wrong, you get a little spanking, it's over, you move on. In fact, I would say maybe that's what happened to Israel. As time after time, God delivered him, and God delivered him, and God delivered him. And he finally said, I'm done with it because you seem to have picked up this message. It doesn't matter because no matter what I do, God's going to come to the rescue right now with no long-term consequences. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3 puts it this way. A man's folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Now, how many times have you run into somebody like that? Right? It's just all a mess, and they're all mad at God, even though they brought it on themselves. Uh, and again, it's, this is message is not just about the biggest things. Boy, it speaks to them. There's nothing too broken for our God to fix. But it speaks to those little things as well, where there's just nagging. Like, 
Lord, how long is this arrest record going to stay with me? How long is, is this situation going to haunt me? How long? And my answer, as I said, is I don't know. But I do know this, that when you turn on God because it took longer than you thought, you're spitting into the wind, my friend. You're making a tragic mistake. You are clipping your wings because we will never fly high again until we learn to deal with those currents, to accept the long-term consequences and in the midst of them, embrace all the blessings that come with it. For as we've seen already again, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What we plant is what we're going to harvest. What's interesting, a little bit of a spoiler alert and fast forward to the, through the rest of this book, is that David accepted the long-term consequences. We never see him angry at God. We see him hurt. We see him frustrated. We see all kinds of emotions going on. I'm not sp saying you're supposed to be a masochist and say, bring it on, more bad stuff in my life. But what we see in David's life is, is that the long-term consequences as they continue he just accepts as, well, that's the way it is. There's a story, I don't know how much depth we're going to go into it, but there's this guy when David is driven out and he loses a kingdom for a little while because his son Absalom leads a, a, a coup, there's a guy on the mountaintop calling down curses on David. Shemai's his name, and he's, he's calling these curses on David, and David's men want to go up and kill the guy, and David just says, oh, leave him alone, leave him alone. And to me, that experience uh, encapsulates uh, what David's attitude was. He realized, you know what? This is a horrible thing. I'm going to be crying out for the Lord to change it. I need God's help in the midst of it. But I'll never forget. These consequences are happening because of what I did. They're not independent of what I did. They're because of what I did. And if I'm going to be angry at anybody, I'm going to be angry at myself. And I'm not going to be angry at God. Here's some modern day long-term consequences that linger. I mentioned earlier, a long ago arrest or conviction that keeps haunting you and haunting you. Even though you've turned to the Lord and everything has changed, it's still there. How about medical issues that are tied to past drug or alcohol abuse? And man, you've totally turned from that. And you're just like, Lord, Lord, man, I want to give myself to you. He doesn't come in and fix those medical things. They stay that way. How about opportunities that were right in front of you and your youthful pride caused you to take the best of the situation and try to climb too fast or do this or do that and, and suddenly what was right in front of you is all gone. Are you going to be angry or are you going to accept it? How about unbiblical financial decision? Either out of ignorance or stupidity, get ourselves totally behind the eight ball, and we wonder why God doesn't let us win the lottery. A marriage. The relationship was totally built on the wrong foundation. And now the marriage sucks. What are you supposed to do? Wake up each day and move on and do the best you can to make that sucky marriage a slightly better marriage today and a slightly better marriage the next day. That's what God calls us to do, endure the long-term consequences. <coughs> Don't short-circuit God's restoration and character development by giving up. Well, here's number five. I want to spend some time on it because it's so significant. They soar 
without apology. David's going to have, we even see in this passage, I have a child. Well, that child's going to be always, a, no, that child's going to be the blessed child. That child is the one the Messiah is going to come through. Okay, I'm going to go to war, but no, you're going to have great success at war. And what happens is when God, in the midst of the consequences, brings blessings, we can have this guilt gene on us that causes us to be apologetic or to feel guilty about the good things he's doing. And it's going to be fed by outsiders in particular. Write this down. Sin can alter God's plan for you. Sin will alter God's plan for you. But sin can't ruin God's plan for you. When you and I respond properly by calling sin, sin, by accepting those immediate consequences, by doing the things that we've been looking at, there is nothing that can ruin God's ultimate plan for us. It's going to alter it. It reminds me of Jeremiah chapter 18. We've talked about it before, this really cool passage where the Lord tells Jeremiah the prophet, I want you to go to the potter's house and I want you to watch what he's doing. And in that, there's going to be an incredible message for the entire nation of Israel. And then he's going to print it in the book of Jeremiah as a message for all of us as well. And what happens is he's seeing the potter, and the potter's an expert. He's making something, he's got it all planned out, but what he's making is marred in his hands. There's something wrong with the clay. And what's a potter have to do? Well, he can't just take a little chunk out of the clay and continue with the pot. It doesn't work that way. He's got to bring it all the way back down and make it into something different. But I love this phrase. So he made it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. It wasn't like my shop projects. We used to have in, in school when I was there, they'd have the, uh, it was called shop and they teach you all of these things and kind of whatever I made, I put two grooves in it and call it an ashtray because it looked like nothing else. And, and that's not what God does. Like, oh, I don't want you to do this. Put two grooves, call it an ashtray. No, it pleased the potter to make. It was different, but it still showed off his skill. And that's what your life and my life does and why we need to soar again, no matter what it is that has happened. Uh, because after that little lesson, the Lord says, can I not, O Israel, do with you as this potter does to the clay? That's what God does. Now, there are three great enemies of grace and mercy in your life that are going to make it hard to soar without apology. Don't listen to them. Let me help you see what they are, because those of you, the, 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 the more public or the more uh, uh, horrific the fall was, the more these things are going to haunt you. And the first one is this. It's Satan himself. Satan himself. You see, Satan is the great accuser of the brethren. His native language is to lie, and his favorite chore is to accuse us. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, where we're told of the point where Satan is going to be completely cast down, the angels shout with joy, behold, the accuser of the brethren who does accuses us day and night has now been thrown down. He's been silenced. We get a glimpse of what kind of an accuser he is from the book of Job. The famous story of Job and all of his trials begins with this simple fact in the first two chapters. Job is the most godly, righteous man around. 
in fact, in ways that we don't understand. Now, someday I want to ask God now, now how does this work? He just says, listen, this is what happened. I'll tell you someday how and why and all these questions you have. But here's what he says. That God said to Lucifer, have you seen Job? More or less my main man. There's not a better one on earth. And then Job, the accuser, says, well, of course. Look how he's blessed. Dude has great fame. The dude has great wealth. He's got an incredible family. And for whatever reasons, God says, nope, that's not it. He's my man. And Satan continues the accusations. And God says to him, okay, you can touch him. You can't do this, this, and this, but you can do that. And the enemy says, okay, see, I'm going to prove my point. Well, long story short, what happens is Job goes through the trials of Job, but I love this phrase, and in all this, he did not sin. His wife comes forward and says, why don't you curse God and die? And he says, silly woman, what you talking about? The God, God gives and God can take away. And in all this, Job did not sin. See, <laughs> The dude's the most amazing liar and accuser ever. And if he did that to the best guy on earth at that point, can you imagine his ability to pull up stuff on you and me? It's amazing. And that's why I got to go to the cross. If Satan wants to stand before me and say why I don't deserve to have ever had the privilege of being one of your pastors, why I don't deserve to ever have the privilege of any of the blessings in my life, he's got a list and it's like, dude, you are spot on, but I've got something better. I've got this piece of paper. It's from the judge. And it says my penalty has been paid in full. So who are you going to believe? You're going to believe the accuser and the liar, or are you going to believe Jesus Christ who cried out, it is finished, it is paid in full. He is your defense lawyer. He is your judge. All Satan is is the accuser. Don't listen to him. He lies. He lies really well, I want to remind you. I mean, incredibly well. He lies so well, a third of the angels fell with him because they thought he could actually pull off a coup. I mean, think about that. Are you kidding me? Don't listen to him. Second, our personal guilt. When our personal guilt comes in, and some of us need a lot more guilt and some of us need a lot less guilt, we're somewhere on that, that spectrum. But for those of us who live in the guilt zone, listen, here's what your Satan's going to whisper to you and your guilt zone is going to tell you. I am forever what I once was. I am what I did then, not who I am now. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 17, which once we've stepped over the line and become a follower of Jesus, tells us how to think. The Apostle Paul writes, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. How does the world look at people? Purely in light of what they did. And then we hold it there. And in our cancel culture today, man, it's is stronger, stronger than ever. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has, what? Gone. It's not the old is pushed aside for a little bit. It's, oh, the old is not as significant. No. Spiritually, yeah, the consequences continue. 
but spiritually before the Lord and in all eternity, the old is gone and the new is here. Are you holding on to that? With that thing that happened five years ago, that thing that happened 25 years ago, that thing that happened 40 years ago, that thing that happened yesterday? Are you listening to Satan or are you listening to Jesus? Are you having a worldly view and letting guilt hold on? Yeah, guilt is wonderful if it causes me to call sin, sin. <laughs> if it causes me to have brokenness. If it causes me not to make excuses. But when it goes so far as to cause me to think that I cannot become something different through the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus, I have missed everything. And then there's a third group. They're going to be out after you. The self-righteous watchdogs. Gil tells me, I will always be what I was. The self-righteous watchdogs say, you were forever what you once were. As again, we talk about cancel culture every now and then. That's the horrificness of it. There's nothing more demonic than cancel culture in our culture or sadly the cancel culture that is in the Christian community as well. There will always be self-appointed Christian cancel culture watchdogs who are running around to find out whatever is in your past or whatever it is you did. And the irony is they're all hypocrites. They're all what Jesus, they got, they, they, they got what I like to call log eye disease. When Jesus says, why are you worrying about the speck over there when you got the log in your own eye? God never listens to the watchdog's bark. God never pays any attention to them. But sadly, we do. And even more sadly, some of us, after listening to some podcast or reading this or doing that or, or with friends or a judgmental church background, we think we're helping God out when we play the watchdog role. It doesn't work that way. He's not baby Jesus needing a watchdog anymore. He's King Jesus. These self-appointed spiritual security guards for God forget. The Apostle Paul, whose verses they love to quote out of the New Testament, was a blasphemer of God and a murderer of Christians. And then God said, watch what I can do with this crooked stick. And it became an apostle, an author of Scripture. And the church planner par excellence and in a human level was responsible for the spread of Christianity in that first century or David's life. Man, we'd write him off so big. God said the consequences are going to continue, but you're going to raise Solomon, you're going to write scripture, you're going to rule well. What about the passage in Psalm 103, 10 to 12? Our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. And why do we let people keep bringing them up? Why, God forbid, are we bringing them up for other people? There's a passage in the New Testament that talks about people who cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to this. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then just in case we don't know who these wrongdoers are, he says this, don't be deceived. Remember, I've been pointing out, that means most people don't get this. Don't be deceived. This is the way it is. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers nor men who have sex with men 
nor people who were thieves, nor people who were greedy, or nor people who were drunkards, nor people who slander, spread bad news, nor people who swindle business schemes will inherit the kingdom of God. They're all damned straight to hell. And then the next verse says this. And this is what some of you, I love it, were. The world says this is what you are. Jesus says this is what you were. But you used to be that. What's happened? You were washed. Okay? That means the filth was cleansed off you. You were next, he uses this phrase, sanctified. What, that's a fancy stained glass word. What's it mean? It means to be set apart. So it's like God takes us from the junk heap when we do what we've been looking at today. And, and what he does is he cleans us all up. And then he sets us aside as special. And then we are also justified, which is a legal term, which shuts down Satan and his accusations actual, uh, uh, absolutely, completely, because it's a legal term of you are made just, you are made right. There's nothing on the record against you. It's been expunged completely and totally in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's why I say soar without apology. Oh man, accept those gray clouds as you're soaring that are part of what you did in the past. And, and, and don't excuse what you did as if it wasn't the big deal it actually was. But our God is into taking broken and into fixing it. And when he does that in your life, for the little thing or the big thing, let him do it. You see, when we've fallen hard, when a friend or someone we love has fallen hard, remember that they can and will fly again if we'll simply take responsibility. If we'll accept those immediate consequences, if we will get up and move on and then endure the long-range consequences when they think they ought to be over by now, and then we can soar without apology. There are no factory seconds in God's kingdom. Even his plan B is an incredibly beautiful plan. Fly with it. And David gives us the recipe. David gives us a path. David gives us a pattern of how that can be done. Father, would you take these things and would you, would you give us the hope that you have called us to? Lord, we want to be realists. We don't want to be those people who act like sin is in sin. But at the same time, we don't want to be those people who act like grace and mercy isn't grace and mercy. To your glory and your fame. Amen. That was an incredible message. We hope that encouraged you and strengthened your faith. Thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back next week.